Last week, as a overview, we are in chapter 6. We're talking about the seven uh, seals. Actually, there are six of them in chapter 6. Um, and then there's an interlude, and then chapter 7 actually is, or uh, chapter 7 is the interlude. Chapter 8 is, starts with the seventh seal, which is the re release of the seven trumpets. And it starts with a very interesting thing, which we will talk about Hopefully today, if we talk about the altar, that the souls are underneath, if we can get to that today. So as a recap, what we saw, and I'll go through this drawing again, is, is that we saw the seven churches, which is the way Revelation opened up, uh, Christ among the lampstands, um, and he is encouraging, and in a loving, fatherly way, um, or more like a groom way, is encouraging his church and letting them know that there will be hard times, but it is he who perseveres to the end. And then John is transported to heaven where he sees a vision of the throne room and the sovereign God who oversees all of creation. And from there, uh, the, the, the vision uh, evolves and Jesus is seen as the lamb. He is called the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of, of Jesse, and John looks to see a lion, sees a lamb who was slain. Um, Jesus takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne, which is a going back to Daniel 7, which is the one like the Son of Man coming and receiving his kingdom. Um, and then he begins to open the scroll. And so um, what begins by the first four uh, seals being broken are what Hollywood loves to call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, and they use it as a very destructive, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, sinister type concept when in fact and in reality, uh, apocalypse just simply means to be revealed. Um, it can mean cataclysm, but the actual Greek word means to be revealed. So that's why it's called the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus. It's the revelation of him. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the four horsemen of the revelation of John. That's all that means. And these four horsemen have a very specific thing that they do. And there is, is what we talked about last week, and I'll talk about it this week. You cannot isolate any one of the horsemen from the other three. They are a unit. They, it, they signify the general structure or the general character and nature of the society, uh, uh, of the, the city of man throughout the intertest, uh, intertestamental period. Now, what do I mean by the city of man? Who knows? And I say that as juxtaposed to something else. So when I say this is a characteristic of the city of man, what do I mean by that? I'm going to just clarify that so when I use it later on, everybody gets it. City of man. No. It is opposed to the city of God. Um, it is the kingdom of man. It is the building of Nimrod. It is... Uh, man's establishing his own kingdom. Remember what people say when Lucifer is thrown down in Ezekiel. I don't know if many of you can, can pull that right up out of your memory banks. But Lucifer is thrown down and the, the nations come and walk by him and they say this very interesting thing. They say, is this the man that called, caused the nations to fall? So Lucifer elevates man. To the, to the throne or to the seat of God. Remember, 
what he said to Eve? You'll be like God. So he wants to elevate man into the place of God because that was his deal. What did he say in Isaiah chapter, I think it was nine? What did he say? I will ascend. I will be like, three, three times he said it. I don't know where the mic is. Yeah, he said, get behind me, Satan, Satan you've set your, 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 you've set your interests, uh, you've set your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. So there's this direct equation between the things of man and, and what Lucifer is trying to do to counter the city of God. So when I say from now on in the class, the city of man, what I mean is that which counters and is uh, a... a, a um, forfeiture or a, uh, a counterfeit to the kingdom of God. So the four horsemen actually create the atmosphere, the political, the, uh, the social, the economic structure of the city of man. And this will remain uh, steadfast throughout the intertestamental period. And so what we've, and, and there's been some debate about what the white horse is, and we talked about that. The white horse has been said sometimes is Christ. I disagree with that. Um, because it's not identified, and a lot of people, the only things that they point to are the word conquest, which Jesus is to uh, subdue the nations, and the white horse. And they usually can contain that um, definition or that interpretation within Revelation itself. I think that's a bad hermeneutical practice. Yeah. Um, we must, and I wanted to say this, though. Um, don't try and interpret Revelation by Revelation only. That's not a good practice. John pulls over 500 references from the Old Testament. So if you do not use the Old Testament to help you understand Revelation, you are going in gravely handicapped. And the scriptures that we use with regards to the release of the four horsemen are, and I'll run them by you again, are, um, I should know them off the top of my head. I kind of do. Zechariah 6, which are the uh, four charioteers that come through the bronze mountains and they go to the four corners of the earth. That is indeed a picture of the four horsemen. They come through two mountains of bronze. What is bronze? It, bronze always represents judgment. So they come forth for judgment. They are God's judgment on the earth. And each one of the four chariots, who, by the way, ride a horse that's exact in color in three, and one is dappled, and the other one is, is green in John's vision, and they go to the four corners of the earth. This is what the four horsemen represent, okay? Um, because they do go to the, the four corners of the earth. Uh, Ezekiel 14, um, speaks of dread, uh, dreadful judgments, um, and he actually lists the judgments of the four horsemen in Ezekiel chapter uh, 14. There's a very interesting statement that Jesus makes, and we'll get to it in a minute, but have you ever thought about this? What does the red horse release? We touched on it just a little bit last week. He takes away, away peace in a man's and what does the red horseman have? 
he has a, a sword. What did Jesus say? Think not that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. It's very likely that Jesus may have been referring to, the, to this, to his release of the, this kind of thing. I've never put that together, but that dawned on me this week when I was reading that again. So anyway, uh, also Leviticus 26, where all of the um, uh, stipulations with regard to the covenant um, that was given, the Levitical covenant that was given to, to Israel in the wilderness, if you break these things, if you break my covenant, these are the things that will happen to you. And the things that are listed there are actually what we see released by the four horsemen. Okay, so there's all kinds of Old Testament precedent to suggest that the four horsemen of, are of a like kind. They are a judgment, and they all function together as a unit, and we'll see how that goes. Last week, we talked about the white horse. It's a political military structure. He is given a crown. He's the only one of the four horsemen that has a crown. In that, what I understand to, to mean is, is that he's given dominance and oversight. He is the one that establishes the, the, the overall um, uh, uh, fabric of the society by which the other horsemen function in. And he is uh, political, military oversight, and from that will come war. His deal is to conquer, and the word there, conquer, means militarily. Now, America can conquer, and I thought about this this week. America can conquer, but does it have to necessarily inflict military might? Does it actually have to bomb somebody to get them to submit? No. Why? What, else? what does it do? It's intimidation. It can conquer through intimidation. So any kind of conquest is related to the white horse. And if you think about it, our society... It, globally is based on dominance. It's based on conquest. Africa's replete with it. All right? Um, Europe throughout the 1600s was just back and forth and back and forth. So conquest, but there are other conquests like domination, like the conquest of the mind, the conquest, and I'll just say this right out, there's sexual conquest. That whole deviation with the idea of taking the, the act of intimacy out of what it's intended to be and making it some kind of suppressiveness, overcoming, forceful dominance. I've actually, I mean, when I grew up, I heard guys talking about it. They talked about their conquests for the weekend, right? So all kinds of conquests fall under the white horse. So he's created a structure an environment, a political framework, a, socio, a socioeconomic framework. We can also take over countries by what? Economics, right? So we can do this conquest. So the white horse represents the conquest, and it says it twice, to conquer and to, and I can't remember the exact language. Maybe I'll look it up here real quick. Um, here it is right here. Uh, wrote out to, as a conqueror bent on conquest. So the double meaning there is, is very important, okay? It means to conquer by military conquest particularly. So, all right. Any questions on the white horse? I just gave a quick overview. Red horse. 
And when the lamb opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come. Another point that's very important is that Jesus called, well, the four living creatures call forth. That's a very important thing. The four living creatures call forth one of the four horsemen. So there's one-to-one relationship. And if we remember what the four living creatures represent, all of creation. So therefore, the four horsemen, the judgment of the four horsemen impacts all of creation. That we need to make sure that we draw that parallel there. That's why I put this arrow with, with I'll do it this way, like this, because it, it encompasses the entire sphere of creation. What I really should do is draw this like this, because what's going on up here is a glorified state of this. So, uh, anyway, that's beyond our scope here. Whereas the first horseman depicts Satan's attempt to gain dominion over the world, the second horseman seeks to take peace from the earth and cause lethal strife among men. Now, most people point to the red horse's war. That is never said. The text does not say that. Okay? There is nothing written in Revelation that suggests that the red horse is equated with war. It takes peace from the earth and it causes... Let me read the actual thing. The writer was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. Okay, that is a broad scenario. So have you ever noticed just how angry people are lately? For no apparent reason? Just because they disagree? I mean, there are people that shoot each other on the freeway because they didn't like some, the way somebody drives. That's somewhat extreme. Right, wouldn't you agree? It's a little bit extreme. Red horse. It takes peace from the earth. Family, family, small family disagreements escalate rapidly. Um, you know, arguments at football games just escalate rapidly. People get beat up and they're put in the hospital. Right? Little bitty things like this. Red horse creates strife because it's removed peace and it facilitates violent acts between individuals. Not necessarily war. War really actually falls under white horse. Okay? The word peace here refers to the harmony and wholeness desirable for the world and its society. Most commentators equate this horse with the... uh, as the. horse and rider with war, and we just said that. Um, Jesus makes a distinction between wars and rumors of wars and nations rising as nations. He makes a distinction there. Um, certain wars occur uh, when there is strife between nations, but so also does enslavement, economic oppression, discrimination, subversion, and isolated acts of violence, assassination, and murder. Okay? All of those come from the red horse. Smalley indicates that there is an aspect of also of anarchy here and civil disobedience. And as I've said, Jesus alludes to this very thing when he says, think not that I've come to bring peace on the earth and not come to bring peace, but a sword. A man's enemies will be those among his own home. And who released the red horse? The lamb. This is a very prophetic statement by Jesus. 
How many of you have ever equated that statement with, with, with revelation? No. It's, that's why I say constantly I could preach the entire gospel from the book of Revelation. Because it ties back so, so neatly. Um, there's also a, a, an emphasis here by many commentators to say that the focus of the red horse is to kill believers. That the focus of the red horse is to murder the church. Okay? I agreed. How do they get that? I want to just say this. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because I've encouraged a lot of you guys to, to read, to read more, to, to pick up commentaries, to begin to delve into it. There, you will not find a wider diversity of opinions than in commenta commentaries on Revelation. I think it was Bob yesterday that came to me and said, you know, I've, I've been reading commentators, and these guys are, these guys are reformed, and yet they're, they're quite broad in their spectrum. That's true. They are. Because everybody is giving it its best shot. The reason that I'm an amillennialist is because most of what they come back with points back to Old Testament. And they've, they've, taken, they've taken this idea out that everything is way in the future during a seven-year per period. Because I can point to every one of these things that says, is this happening now? Has it been happening? Is this happening now? Has it been happening? When we get to the black horse, all we have to do is say, has this happened? Has it been happening? And wait till we get to the pale horse. It's happening. And it is happening. And it has been happening. And it will happen. So assigning this all to a future really takes the church out of the mix of what's going on in the world today. All right. I won't get into this. The red horse, that the idea of this being directed at the church, there's no indication of any one people group that are, that are intended here. This is a generalized statement. This is a generalized condition of the world. It is a strife oriented world where peace has been removed and there is anger and animosity toward one another racism is a very very good uh example to use why do you hate why do people hate other people from other nationalities why it's irrational right there's no basis for it and yet because of the red horse it's rampant so we see these things happening, okay? Any questions on the red horse? So you... Hello? You're on. <laughs> uh, the red horse, I used the word, uh, the uh, uh, symbol sword. Yep. And... That's probably why I thought it was it, war made sense, you know. Okay. Yeah. So how, how would it, how would that how does that symbol um, identify the the removal of peace just by its fact that it's a war symbol? Well, yeah, uh, I would agree with you. The the um, why does the rider on the white horse use a bow? A bow is a defensive weapon. A bow was a, a defensive weapon in war. It had significance to, to the people during the Roman times because the, the one group of people that was able to resist the Romans, and I can't remember the name of them. I want to say it's the Parthians, but I'm probably wrong. 
And the way that they did it was defensively by using sh uh, short-range bows and arrows. No, it was, it was like some horse tribe. Now it, was, it starts with a P, I know that. But the way that they were able, they didn't, they didn't attack Rome. What they did was defended, and Rome could not beat their defenses, and they used bows and arrows. So when John saw uh, this, um, apparently it had some kind of significance to the people. I don't know, to be honest with you, why a bow is used. Um, and a lot of commentators don't point to that. It's just, um, it just has to do with, I don't know. There's, there's Psalms where Jesus says, and I will break your bow. Has to do with military might, I would suggest. The sword has to do with killing a lot. There's a lot, of con, con, uh, there's a lot of dialogue about the type of sword that the red horseman has. I will tell you this. I do know this. Some claim it to be a large sword. Others claim it to be a small, short sword used in sacrifice. Beale calls it that and, and therefore equates the killing uh, with being aimed at the church because it's a sacrificial blade. Okay? Yes, Bob. I'm going to get all of you a microphone. Uh, okay, just for clarification on that sword, as I recall, there is no specific description of the size of the sword at all. It's called a sword, correct? Yeah, but this, it, it's, uh, yeah, that is correct. But there is Greek, there's a Greek, specific Greek word that indicates the type of sword. It's, a, but even that is spoken of it different by different guys. I mean, Smalley thinks it's a larger sword. Beale, both of them, amazing Greek scholars, calls it a short sword for slaughter. I think to get wrapped up in the symbolism, symbolism of the sword is somewhat missing the forest because of the trees in this case. I'm sure it has some significance. If, if I were to take and spend the time deciphering every symbol that's in Revelation, we'd still be in Revelation 1-3. Okay, because it's, it's vast, it's deep. Um, I will tell you what Leon Morris said. While the rider was given a large sword, and this is what, where Leon Morris says, while the rider is given a large sword, not a short sacrificial blade, he is not said to kill anyone. Men kill one another. He takes peace away, and men proceed to do all the damage. The word rendered slay is not the usual one. It has a meaning of slaughter or to butcher. Okay, so this is violent death is, is the idea here. And maybe in that regard, the sword has significance. I mean, how would you like to die? Being hacked with a sword? I'll pass. All right, let's get on to the black horse. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales. Now, I can tell you why this rider is holding scales. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine. All right, so what do we have here? Anybody? Huh? Injustice, that's a good point. Sounds like market. Market. Place. 
commerce. Yeah. What money. are the scales used predominantly throughout the Old Testament to give indication of? A, remember, we're talking about a cultural phenomenon, a socio-political issue. What is it? Fairness. How about famine? Wheat for a day's wage. Barley for a day's wage. But do not, hoil, hoil, do not harm the oil and the wine. So we're talking about two things here. What are we talking about? Famine. And disparity. Economic disparity. Have we had economic disparity throughout the haves and the have-nots? Right? The basic essentials for you and I cost a fortune. They cost our entire day's wage just to put food onto our table. And yet the rich have the wine and the oil. So what we see here is the idea of famine, shortage, struggle, goes back to Genesis, and you will work with the sweat of your brow to produce Men are struggling now to put food on the table for their families while we have the jet setters who have more than enough and lavish upon themselves and then love to tell the rest of us how we ought to live. Right? So I'm going to put famine and disparity. What was that? Who's watching angry birds back there? All right, so, so far what we have is we have the four horsemen released. We have a political military structure of conquest. All right? Then we have in, also in there we, that, that flows from this, that flows from this, we have what? Strife and murder, but also because of conquest, and economic pressures, sanctions, these kind of things that go on. What do we have? Famine and disparity. Okay? All right. So um, in the Bible, when we talk about the oil and the wine, typically the symbology of that has to do with the Christian faith. Yep. Jesus, purity, peace, all those things. Um, this is an interesting take on it with the famine and disparity. Hadn't thought about that, which makes more sense in context, what we're speaking of. Yeah. But how would the other symbology elements come into play if they do? They, as far as I can tell, they do not. Um, let me, uh, but do not touch the oil and the wine. All right. Those are not typically the elements that we use with regards. They do have, they do have spiritual significance especially toward the Christian faith. I have not read one commentator that speaks of them in that regard. And just so you know, I have 19 commentaries. And just so you know, I read every one of them. Ask my wife. So I have not heard one person speak of the oil and the wine in that regard. What I have heard is a lot of going back and forth between the idea of famine and disparity. What they want to say is that, that this is only a partial famine. And uh, 
that's okay. I, I, I think that the better way to reference this, and there's about a 50-50 split on this, I think the better way to recognize this is that there's disparity because if you look at culture, if you keep this, as you just said, within context of what we're talking about here, what is something that we see that's very, very readily obvious about our society? There is economic disparity. Wine and oil were considered in many cultures fluff, expensive things. Wheat and barley were foodstuffs. They were staple. And if you look at the contrast, what you're seeing is you're seeing men who are breaking their backs just to provide. Because here's the deal. The, the, the measure of wheat that is said here is enough to feed a man, a single man, for a day. All right? Barley, which is a lesser grain, which was used predominantly by the economically challenged, which is a political correct way of saying poor, to feed an entire family. So what you have here is you have a day's wage to feed one person or a day's wage to feed your family, and you have to make that choice. But on the other side, what you have is nothing going on with the oil and wine or the niceties of society. And it seems very evident if we look around us that there is great disparity economically. So in keeping with what we see and in keeping with the idea of balance, which balance in the Old Testament, the balance in the Old Testament, especially in Ezekiel, as I've got it written around here somewhere. Yeah, Ezekiel 4, 9, and 10. The balance was always something that was used in times of famine to weigh out food at a specific amount, okay? So we talked about famine disparity. Uh, this does, in fact, have... Now, I'm going to jump ahead of this because, if you, as you've noticed, I've drawn the church in the middle of the world. And I've done this for a purpose. Because like... Egypt, when the, when the plagues of Egypt were, were dispersed, they were there. Okay? This is another reason that I don't hold to a rapture concept. Because Exodus demonstrates that during the outpourings of the plague, which the bold judgments are direct, directly correspond to, Israel was in Egypt. They were not raptured out. They were not taken away. But the scriptures is clear where God said, but I will make a distinction between them and you. The church is in the middle of all of this that's going on. And the church will suffer because of it. And we see that when we go, remember what I said, that when, when you see this, the message to the seven churches what was going on with the four horsemen was already present. You can go back and read the four, the, the messages to the seven churches and you can find white horse, red horse, black horse, and in a minute, pale horse. So the church does, is affected by it. And so this famine is a big deal because as the world, as this society, this antichrist city of man society pressures the church, pressures 
in order to conquer the church, in order to take away its moorings, its impact on society, to remove family structures, to dissolve parental control, to remove any sovereignty outside of the state itself. So the state has mastery. This is going on in California big time, guys. Big time. This is all pressuring the church. And if you go back to the idea of famine with the church, remember how many of them were having, especially Pergamum, who was having to make a decision. Do I provide for my family and, and compromise my faith? Or do I stand true to my faith and watch my family starve? We live in a, in a society today that says that if your family's starving, you're not serving God. You don't have enough faith. And every time I hear that, I want to say, what about Pergamum? What about Smyrna? What about the second half of Hebrews 11? They wandered around destitute with no place to live, having to live in caves, sawn asunder, wearing sheep clothes, wearing sheepskins for clothing. But the scripture says, yet the world was not worthy of them. So, okay. Any questions on um, the, the black horse? Any comment, question? What do we have so far? Conquest, strife and murder, famine and disparity. Man, we're painting a good picture of what's going on in the world right now, aren't we? Right Now, what does that all boil down to? What do we see as the ultimate culmination, the status, the default of every man within the fallen condition of the world? What is every man's ultimate, let's look forward to it, death. Death is the pale horse. And the pale horse is not pale, it's green. The word is chlora something or other, which means green. It's in Greek. So it's a pale green. And what do we say when people look sick? Yeah, you're a little green, aren't you? Pale horse. All right, let's go over this. The color of this horse is actually green, generally associated with sickness, which lends support to those who tie this to pestilence and plague. All right, this is very important. While the others kill by political military structure, murder, strife, famine, and disparity, this one kills specifically by pestilence and disease. So we've got a full smorgasbord for you folks this morning. So we're going to write here death, pestilence, and disease also included in there is death by wild beasts yeah and there's other things that we're going to get to in a minute germs sickness virus cancer all of this is wrapped up in pestilence all right so what we're going to do now is we're going to draw arrows back to this because this is the culmination of the of the of the uh, city of man this is where it goes. And there's a very interesting statement about the rider on the pale horse. Who follows him? What is Hades? 
Say it out loud. Just blurt it out. It is. It's hell. All right. Now, this is very interesting, and you've got to keep a hold of this, because if you, if you read Revelation in, as individual things, if you read it as individual compartmentalized sections of a vision, you miss the point, because what comes right after this, the altar, the, the altar under which are the souls of those who have died for the faith, right? Do, do people who die for the faith go to hell? Where do they go? Out of the altar. So you see the difference between what's going on with a pale horse and what the sixth or the fifth seal will be? Death is followed by Hades. So every person that dies within accordance who have, have the world as their home, who live in accordance to the city of man, who have taken the mark of the beast, hell follows close after, and they are collected in hell. But there is a different condition and end place for the believer, and we'll get to that in a second. So this is very significant. Pale green horse, um, death follows. So Hades, well, I'll just circle death because death follows. So let's read it real quick and then we'll get on to it. Uh, Come and I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power, they, over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, by wild beasts and the earth. Oh, so is it just the fourth horse that has the ability to oversee, uh, to affect the fourth of humanity, or is it all the horsemen? It's they, and then he goes and lists the things that are specific to the other horsemen. So the four horsemen have control to kill a fourth of the world, or to to inflict their judgment upon the a fourth of the earth. But does that? necessarily mean that we will not feel the effects of what's going on? The answer to that is no. The church is in the middle of this, and it will. And just as those who are following after the beast already, and there is already a mark of the beast, just as there is a sealing of the saints, those that prescribe or subscribe to the society of the city of man die and, and are collected by hell who follows closely thereafter. Those who die in accordance to the kingdom or the city of God are caught up to the altar in the throne room of God. Because remember what Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. And the altar is right about here. All right, so we'll get to that in a second. All right, um, I'm, I've said some of this stuff, so I'm trying to decipher what I've said and what I haven't. Hades was following close behind him. The Greek word translated follows here indicates the continuous activity of Hades. Wherever death strikes, Hades gathers its victims. Okay, um, Hades is the abode of the unbelieving uh, of the unbelieving, 
dead after the resurrection of Christ. The souls of believers are seen throughout Revelation to be in the presence of Christ in keeping with Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. I said that. The satanic nature of death. And now this is why I say this. The this is a satanic death. The satanic nature of death here is made clear in Revelation 20, 13 through 14, where death and Hades gave up their dead that were within them and they were collectively thrown into the, 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 the abode of Satan or the, the eternal torment of Satan. So that same word, death and hell, are thrown in, is this word here. Okay? The preceding two points give, give indication that the judgments loosed by these seals and perhaps also those released by the trumpets and bowls are judgments upon those in rebellion to God, those who worship the beast and, and live in accordance to the world system. The precedent for this is seen throughout the Old Testament, but specifically in the plagues released in Egypt, and we'll get to all that. Um, these also, though, remember, death and Hades are now... Under whose control? Boy, this is a huge deal among commentators. They're under the control of Christ, who now, according to chapter 1, has the keys to what? Death and hell. So death and hell, this is where they get caught up, are being used by the Lamb. I didn't write Revelation, so don't look at me like that. So, I'm just telling you what is clearly indicated, that Jesus now controls death and hell and is using it to establish his purposes. Remember, redemption is a two-sided coin. There is salvation and there is condemnation. There is, uh, there is restoration and, condem uh, and, and uh, judgment. Judgment is, has to be a part of redemption. Remember what it says, that those who die worshiping the beast are tormented day and night in the presence of the Lord continually. Yeah. We get really, really caught up on the idea where it says later on where, where these guys run and they say, fall on us in, in, in the sixth seal and hide us from the, wrath, from the faith of him, face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of who? The lamb. We don't like the idea that the lamb is wrathful. And I'll tell you this right now. That statement in C.S. Lewis that says that Absalom is not a tame lion... That's right. We've got this meek and mild Jesus who's just permissive and almost effeminate. Yeah, what did I say? Uh, Aslan. Aslan is not a tame lion, right? We have this really this kind, thank you for correcting that. It gets on the tape. Uh, but we do. We have this idea that Jesus is this meek and mild. We have these pictures with him holding a little lamb and his little crooked thing next to him. And there's so much patience and during, and we miss the whole idea that the lion lays down with the lamb. That this, all of this is being released by the lamb. Hmm? Yeah. 
Okay, let's close down this section. The fourfold judgments depicted by the four horsemen are not independent or separate of one another. They form a culture and a society, a general fabric into which the judgments via the trumpet and the bowls are poured into. And as we go along, I'll draw out trumpets and bowls here and show how they pour into this. This, is, this structure here provides the way with the church in the middle provides the environment for the last day setting of God's redemptive purposes as stated by the breaking of the seals. Now there's two more to go here that we'll get to. Okay? Anybody have any questions on the four horsemen? No. I can. Oh, you want me to conclude more? No. Yeah. I can. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what I said. Go back and listen to the tape. My wife does that to me all the time. She goes, what did you just say? Uh, I don't know. No, I'll, I'll go over it real quick. So Dean, Dean yeah. I had a, yeah. a thought. Okay, think away. So with the church being in the whole system and that we're supposed to be distinguishable from the system, the... The fight that the enemy puts on us is what Malachi happened when God said, you're arrogant against me. Well, how are we arrogant against you? Well, we basically look around us and um, those that are doing good are, are, are suffering and those that are doing bad are, are testing God and escaping. And you know what? It's vain to serve God. That's, what, that's the fight that we need to stay away from because yeah. that's what the devil will try to do is have us look at that system and and try to bring us into that where we'll look at God and we'll say the goodness of God doesn't exist in this because mm -hmm. we're so surrounded by that. Yeah, and we have to be careful not to put on God things that God does not put on himself. You know, we cannot say that God is not a wrathful God. God is wrathful. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is a, as Jonathan Edwards said, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so we kind of eliminate that wrathful side of God in the world today. And it can, you can tell by how permissive, how sin-ridden, how terrible our theology is, how loosey-goosey we are with almost everything. Because we don't hold to the fact that the lamb is wrathful. There's a side of him that I, we best not poke with a stick. Okay? So, conclusion, fourfold judgment. Although John sees the lamb open each seal in a chronological order, one should not read into the text a significant passing of time between each. Instead, they should be seen as immediately following one, another, one after another as an introduction of players participating in the same scene. Okay? So what John is doing is, although Jesus opens the scroll, all, all seven seals, John is seeing what comes out of each one. All seven seals must be opened in order for the plan of redemption to be read. Okay? So what we're doing is this is a preparatory Overview. This sets the stage into which the plan of redemption is, is inserted. 
That's what we're seeing by these six seals. The seventh opens the true floodgates of God's judgment. Susan. Okay, I had to wait for the lights to turn on. Um, just a crazy thought. So when the scroll was opened, is it possible that that was at the same moment that the veil was torn? No, Jesus, the veil was torn when Jesus actually gave up his spirit. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. There was a great earthquake and the, and the curtain in the temple was torn. That's before. That's before Jesus ascended. Yeah. Okay. And we'll get to that because the veil being torn is very significant with the altar that sits before the throne. Many people consider it to be the brazen altar. I, I always like, why would you want more sacrifice in heaven after Jesus has been the fulfilled sacrifice? I don't get that, but it's a big deal. So we'll go over it. Um, all right, this is supported by the truth that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Okay, I already did that. Further supported, uh, support of this is seen in the various Old Testament prophet, prophetic texts, wherein a fourfold judgment is vowed upon the nations persecuting Israel and even upon Israel for unfaithfulness. Okay, so Beale makes an interesting point. Although the four horsemen create a context into which judgments are poured, the church being in the middle of it is being refined by those judgments. Okay, we're not untouched by them is what's being said right i guess that's what i was trying to say so as we're being touched by them, it's our hard attitude yeah that's true all right i'm going to close this particular section with gkb uh with a a statement by uh gb cared which i thought really summed up this and i'm going to draw a picture of where the two remaining or the fifth and the sixth seal falls, because we're going to do fifth and sixth seal, and then we're going to do an interlude, and I'll try to do all of that next week, because the last two seals are really easy to go over. Um, actually, the sixth seal is a bit more involved, because it also incorporates the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl are all together included, in, in that, are, are all one in the same event. All right. G.B. Carradine uh, says that uh, it has been asked if that if the I wrote that wrong that if the judgments released by the first four seals have existed throughout history, what makes them different or of special significance in the last days? G.B. Carradine simply says this: the heavenly voice which says "Come" is not calling disasters into existence. They are to be found in any case whether they are cruelty, selfishness, ambition, lust, greed, fear, and pride. Rather, the voice is declaring that nothing can now happen, not even the, four, uh, the, the most fearsome evidence of man's disobedience and its nemesis, which cannot be woven into the pat pattern of God's gracious purposes. So what, is say, what it's being said now is all of this in the Old Testament was somewhat free-floating. What's happening now is that it's all being woven into the fabric of God's plan through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one that's now releasing us. Okay? All right. I, I have a hard time hearing that, that what you just explained is free-floating in the Old Testament and you're saying it's woven together now. I don't see how it could possibly not be woven together from before the foundations of the earth being laid. It points toward. The Old Testament points toward. But it, 
The fact that this is released now with a redemption, this is redemption here. And we know that this was not released until the Lamb was in the throne room of God and released it. John's vision clearly demonstrates this. But the law was the keeper until redemption came. Everything pointed that direction. That's the Old Testament. Paul even says that. All these things point toward Jesus. Yeah, Grace. I think the term free floating is what the problem was. Is there another way to restate that? Um, yeah, with a focus toward. They have a focus toward. Yeah, I guess free floating probably is not the best word to use. Let's just say pointing toward. Okay. They have a, they're a foreshadowing of the redemptive purposes of God that are executed by the opening of the scroll. But they themselves do not have, in and of themselves, are not being woven now into the fabric. Prior to this, it's clear that Christ has released these now under His sovereignty. And there is something to be said that when Jesus, who is the Redeemer of the natural order, and this is where we sometimes get a little bit confused. It took a man, it took a created being to redeem creation. Jesus took the form of a man and was born of a woman. That's Galatians, right? So Jesus became a man and thereby could redeem. So redemption started, the, the plan of God's redemption, the actual actualization of God's plan of redemption started at the ascension. That's why I have the word ascension written here. Because at that time, only at that time are the keys of death and hell given to, to Jesus. Not prior. Where are the souls of the righteous kept prior? Sheol. Because they are kept. Remember the Lazarus? What did Jesus say? They were together but they were separated by a gulf. And then when Jesus ascended, what did he lead in his trail, train? Yeah. Captives. Probably to the altar right here. This event right here is significant. This event pushed into play the entire plan of God's redemption. At that time, Jesus became master. Jesus, the man Jesus. No. Okay, and we have to make sure that we understand that. The man, the incarnate Son of God, who died and rose, became and was the, um, sort of the king of everything, and he's putting everything under his feet, but he also received the death, the keys of death and hell. At this time, not prior. Okay? So I think the better way to look at it, Andy, is everything points to it and is foreshadowing of it. And at the ascension of, uh, of Christ, the actuality of it became truth when Christ opened the seals. And that is a specific time in, in history. Because John uh, Galatians clearly says, at just the right time. Okay, so this event 
marks a significant this event, the lamb in the heaven, and the significance is, is that we saw him as slain after his death and resurrection, the seals on the scroll were opened and the plan of redemption was let forward. That in and of itself marks a distinction between what we saw, that there is a purpose toward redemption on what's happening now in the world to bring it to conclusion. And prior, what we had was foreshadowings of. Does that make sense? Is that better? So, if there's a better explanation out there, I'm all ears. But that seems to be uh, the general tenor of what most of the scholars understand and what I've come to understand. That this event, the ascension of the Lamb, marks something significant in redemptive history and initiates the plan of God's redemption by the opening of the scrolls. And all the judgments that are being poured out on the earth are now controlled by Jesus Christ, the man crucified and resurrected, who now controls all things toward the fulfillment of, of, of the purpose of redemption. Okay? Questions on that? That's not to say, and free-floating was not the best way to say it, but that's not to say that the Old Testament didn't have significance. It did. It pointed toward. It's a shadow of. There's, there's a book series out that is all about Jesus being preached from the Old Testament found in every book. And it's really cool. But it's all foreshadowing. Okay. think you know in the old testament um, god used plagues and disasters as judgment against the nations that were coming against israel and sometimes against israel itself as part of his redemption like you're saying and now it's global like we're, you know his when he says come it, he's releasing it yeah in it's the same way but yeah to the whole world. i think a better way to say it let me just close with this statement through, the, through his death and resurrection, Christ has subjugated the forces of evil and now uses them as his agents to execute his purposes of redemption and judgment for the establishment of his kingdom. God intended that the suffering of the cross should have both a redemptive and a judicial purpose. And in like manner, suffering through the, throughout the age following the cross ha now have the same purpose. Okay? How's that? Okay. We got to close. We got to stop. I'm over. So they're hard concepts to get our heads around. But any other things? Any other thoughts? Okay. So Satan already knows he's lost. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he already knows he's under con the control of the Lord, like he's always been. So what's his, what's his deal? Is it I'm taking as many as with me as I can? I think that uh, f forever Satan has been deceived. And I, I personally feel like he thinks he can still win. That's the, yeah, that's my question, I guess. Does he really think he can still win? I think he does. Wow. <laughs> or, I don't know. So the four horsemen go here. The fifth seal goes here. And then the sixth seal will show goes here. Okay? So, 
when we get there, we'll we'll diagram all that out and I'll erase all the little arrows.